Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate your time, man. And also, I want to thank our worship and tech team. Uh, Very rarely do we have, like, not the screens working or something, and it just shows you how much they really do behind the scenes. So can you guys thank our tech team, our worship team online? Thank you, guys, for all your effort and your care for our church. And uh, even some of you guys jumping in and helping our guests today uh, look at songs online. Guys, thank you for jumping in. Uh, If you are new with us, my name is Aaron. I get the great privilege of being the pastor of this church and our growing community. Uh, We planted this church roughly two years ago, and we typically gather in Brighton, uh, but because of COVID, we are temporarily in Newton, and we are eager and using a realtor to help us get back into Brighton. And so members be looking forward to next steps about how we will get back to Brighton in all mission. Um, We've been in a series, if you're a guest, in the book of Ephesians. It's this wonderful letter, six chapters, written by this guy named Paul. Uh, He was a great missionary in this area called Ephesus. He started a church in that area, and he's been really teaching us all what the gospel is and what the gospel does. That word gospel, Kyle, explains the good news of what God has done for us to have a relationship with him. And then how do you live out of that gospel? And so this message today is really a part two of what last week was. Last week was about walking in the, here's a test. What was it? It's like light, light. I think it's light. Yeah, it's exactly right. Excellent guys. Yeah. Walking in the light. And then this week is part two about walking in wisdom. And I used an analogy last week that will carry us into this week. And I use this analogy of every evening uh, when it's a girl's bedtime, we put them down to bed and then we wake them up in about four or five hours for them to use the restroom. And if the lights are off, and you walk into a child's room to help them use the restroom and they're crying out to help them and you haven't cleaned up the floor, you're walking into a death trap is what we talked about. There's Legos and Barbies and little wands and little crowns that just serve as death traps for your feet. And we talked about how we have to walk carefully around certain landmines or things that can harm us or harm others. And so we learned from last week is we've got to turn on the light of God's wisdom so we can see those landmines that hurt us and others. Well, this week is a part two of that. Part two, really these few verses that Kyle just read, verses 15 through 21. It's gonna be really important, by the way, that you have your Bibles open because we don't have it on the screen. Wanna make sure you guys can have it. But verses 15 through 21 is really a summary climax of all that Paul's been teaching us since chapter four about how to live a life worthy of this gospel we've received. And this week, again, he's warning us about some common pitfalls that you and I fall into and that derail us from living out this gospel, from experiencing all that God has for us, and can also cause us harm to ourselves and others if we don't live this way. And so, for example, here's how he lays out these verses I'm going to teach on. He says, don't live as unwise, but be wise. Be careful for that Barbie on the ground, he's saying. He's saying, hey, here's another landmine. Don't waste your time but steward your time for God's glory and the good of others. Watch out for the Lego, he's saying. He's saying, don't be foolish, but I want you to understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he ends with this. He says, don't get filled with alcohol, but be filled with the spirit. Those are the Legos or the Barbies or the landmines that he's telling you. And he's saying, guys, flip on the light switch of wisdom this week. 
And guys, that's what we're going to unpack. So that's why in verse 15, here's how this starts and here's how our message will start for us. He starts out by saying this, look carefully, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Again, it's like modern day Paul is telling us, hey guys, pay attention. There are landmines and pitfalls and Legos and Barbies that are all around our daily life. And if we step on them, it can cause harm to us. Or if we don't warn someone else about stepping on it, it can harm them. So walk carefully. And that word translated carefully in this language, if we know the Bible, the Bible's not written in English. It was written in three other languages. And we, we translate it over. Sometimes we lose the meaning of what it meant in that language. So sometimes it helps us to understand the definition of something in Greek and we carry it over. And that word carefully carries a connotation of something done really cautiously or really in, intentionally. And we're given really close attention to. And Paul is saying that we are to look carefully how we live and what we do and what we think and how we use our time. Because if we're not wise with that, it causes us harm and others harm and God's glory harm. Walking carefully suggests that life is not aimless, that we're to do it with a purpose and it has a direction. It's not just a series of really frantic activities followed by some downtime and then you just start when the alarm clock wakes up each day. Walking carefully means there's a purpose and there's an aim for your life. It means to walk carefully is to accomplish the chief goal of humanity, which is what? It's enjoying God and glorifying him forever. So we must be watchful of where we're going and what we're doing to be steady and focused, to be intentional and to give careful attention to how we live our life. So really this whole passage is almost like a compass showing us which direction is for our good and for humanity's flourishing. And as we follow the compass, it's good for our feet and our, our life and others as well. And so Paul wants to turn on the lights and saying, this is what's good for you. But Paul's being very honest with us. He's giving us commands here because it takes some effort on our part, right? If you're walking somewhere or you're trying to like, if you're on, by the way, if you're like new to Boston, uh, and I'm like from the South and dogs go to the bathroom on grass, but in the city, they go on the sidewalk. You know what I'm talking about? You see that? And like, you gotta be careful where you walk because you're like, ooh, that's a, ooh, someone already walked in that because I see that trail. You know what I'm saying? When you're walking on the street, we gotta be careful how we walk. And so Paul's telling us, be careful, but it requires effort, intentionality. And you and I grasp the energy to do that from the gospel. God carefully walked a perfect life living the way we should have lived so he could give us the righteousness that he earned. And because Jesus lived carefully for us, we are to live carefully in the design that God has for your flourishing. Does that make sense? So that's where we gain the motivation because it's good for us. It's gonna require some destination. And just like any traveler, if we've got world travelers, we've got some sailors. I know in our Cohen network, our other three congregations, we actually have a, like a professional sailor and rower, a part of our church. Any traveler knows if they're inattentive to the direction or progress, they'll never arrive at the destination. And so we all want to arrive at the destination of God's glory and our good. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna ask ourselves one big question in this passage, and we're gonna answer it in four ways. Here's the big question. What does it actually mean to walk wisely? And that's the title of today's message. What does it mean to walk 
wisely. And here's the first thing we're going to unpack. Walking wisely means that you steward your time for God's glory. Walking wisely means you steward your time for God's glory. Look again at verse 15 and 16. If you're new at our church, we always uh, teach expositionally, meaning we take a passage and we walk through it verse by verse or word by word, because who cares what I have to say? We want to know what God's word has to say for our good. So that's where we always get our points from what the Bible says and not from my opinions. Verse 15, Paul says, hey guys, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise and hurried and rushed and careless, but walk wise. And then here's the first principle he gives us. Verse 16, he says, I want you to make the best, the best use of the time that's available. Why? Because the days are evil, he says. It's interesting that Paul's first stop in this summary statement that he's been teaching us is the conversation about how you use your time. It's a brief comment in this text, but it really carries some really enormous importance. Guys, our society and your lives, we're a hurried people, aren't we? Like we, we seem determined to pack as many activities into a brief amount of time as possible. As if we think that busyness equates worthiness, resulting in lives that are just frazzled and we're fatigued and we're on the fringe of burnout all the time. And so we must reconsider how we use our time. And like Christ, we must learn how to balance our work and our rest. And we've got to find our worth, our value, our meaning to live, not in our productivity or in our activity, but in our identity in God. That we are loved, we are blood-bought, we are enough even if the to-do list stays undone, even if you don't accomplish everything, even if you aren't married, if you don't have kids, if you don't have all the money, if you don't get in the program, you don't get the promotion, that your productivity is not your identity. And so Paul reorients us. He says, I want you to be careful how you use your time. Don't spend all your time trying to earn your value or your worth, or your significance. Guys, we're a hurried culture. We're always stacking up our plans and we're so busy all the time trying to get or accomplish something that our heart desires. And in this text, we're finding that we should use it wisely because all of those other things can lead towards evil. It's not bad to have a job. It's not bad to be married. It's not bad to want money. It's not bad to be successful. But if we think that that will sustain our hearts and give us what we long for, we're misguided. So we've got to use our time wisely because if not, something else will use our time and it won't be for our good. Statistically speaking, even most households in our society spend, this is, this is crazy because I'd be reflective in my own family. Most households in our society spend four to five hours watching TV and movies and streaming and we often don't give too much thought about the content that we're watching that's actually shaping our minds and shaping our hearts, probably away from God and his ways. Guys, even other diversions take our attention off of using our time wisely. Guys, the endless scrolling on Instagram that I do is like mind-blowing. I can be like, oh, I'm just going to you know, check out my friends 10 minutes later and 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, dinner time. What? What? Like, 
we got to go take my family out or I got to go care for my kids. Like what, what happened to the time? It's these diversions that take our attention. the endless scrolling, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, watching TikTok after TikTok video. And we use those things like a refuge for us, don't we? It's where we run to. It's to excite us, right? Or we try to numb ourselves with it from the hardships of life. But rather than serving as a refuge, social media often serves as a thief. It's a thief stealing our time and our joy and our rest as we anxiously measure our lives and experiences against other people, wishing that our lot in life was like their highlight stream. My friends, this is not a good use of your time because it's not good for your hearts. For it robs us of what our hearts are truly after, which is a life of excitement and joy and pleasure, all of which are found when we walk carefully according to the design and will of God laid out in the scriptures. Guys, it's laid out clearly in the pages of scriptures and not in the pictures of social media. A good translation of this text would be this, buy up every opportunity. Time is going by and evil will use it if Christians do not. That phrase in verse 16, the days are evil, is just a general description of the presence of evil in the world that tries to steal and kill your time to distract you from God's ways and for your flourishing. So let's consider for a moment, how can you and I better use our time? Let me ask you this. How much time do you give to God and his word and prayer? What fills your mind more? Is it scripture or is it streaming services on your TV or computer? Man, that's a hard question for me to even assess. Guys, I wanna be honest with you. I love my movies. I love my TV shows. I love that. But I'm finding my heart is finding more comfort and refuge in those things. And then when I'm done watching those, the problems I have in life still remain. I didn't really escape it. I just clicked pause. And while I clicked pause, they were compounding up. And then I had to get to it afterwards. Wasn't a good use of my time. TV's not bad. Movies aren't bad. But if I try to derive something ultimate from something temporary, I'm left worse off. If God truly is, as John 10 says he is, Jesus is the one who has come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So we should give much more time to learn about this life God can give us than anything this world has to offer us. How much time do you give to God, his word and prayer? Number two, how much time do you give to investing in other people is another way we can assess this. How much time do you give to investing other people and pointing them to Christ? Guys, listen, we, we can't just think about our own lives when we think about stewarding our time. We must think about the lives of other people around us. Guys, there are 6.5 million people in Boston and statistically only 3% know this life that Jesus offers, this abundant life and this eternal life. How do we steward our time to love and share the gospel and invite in our friends and neighbors? Your coworkers, your friends, your roommates, they need the hope and help of Jesus. How often do you spend time praying for them or spending time investing spiritually into them, caring for them? We must do this if we consider using our time wisely. And then last, there's a lot of ways we can assess this, guys. And last, I want you to think about in terms of using your time, how much time do you spend actually resting? Like taking time away from work, away from study, away from busyness, 
Even if it's necessary, how do we take time to rest? This is what the biblical principle of Sabbath is called. Sabbathing in scripture is taking time off of work to trust that God works for you. Resting is really, guys, for a Christian about trusting. Trusting that God is the provider and the advancer of your life, not you. And when you click pause on everything you're responsible for, you realize that you're not the sovereign one of your life. And you begin to trust that God has the care and control over your life. And when you rest, it's not just about you physically stopping. It's seeing that God never stopped working for you. It's good for your heart to Sabbath or to trust that God is working for you. And when you trust him better, you rest better. You're not as anxious and worried about the future or if you can accomplish something. Why? Because you've practiced his principle. God worked six days in that creation narrative and then he rested on the seventh. God gives us this principle to rest, to teach us to trust that he's the one working. He's the one caring. He's the one providing. And when you rest, you learn and your heart learns to trust him. Even if the work goes undone, even if everything's not finished. And let me tell you, if you guys are Enneagram fans, I'm an Enneagram three, our cuss word is rest. <laughs> like it's abomination to get a nap. Like you are evil if you stop working. And every Monday for our family is a Sabbath. Like I don't answer your calls unless it's emergency. I don't really text you back. I spend time resting. Our family sleeps in. I read as much scripture as I want to. I pray and I play with my kids the entire day. And there is so much on my plate as a pastor of a young church in the midst of pandemic in Boston when we're not even in the neighborhood that we want to be in. But my heart's got to trust that God cares more about this church than I ever could. And he's got more plans and designs from this church than I could ever have. And my responsibility is also to steward my time to rest, not work 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 hours every week. Because that shows that I'm thinking I'm the one in control rather than the Lord. And that works for whatever your school program is or your job. It works for you the same way. How are you spending your time of rest? So this is how we steward our time for God's glory. That's point number one. Guys, let's just be mindful. Let's really think about your schedule. And some of you might need to reprioritize your calendar. Go home today and think about how am I stewarding my time? What am I investing in with it? Some of you, I, I did this for like a year and a half or so. I, I categorized every 30 minutes of my day and then put them in categories of how much time I spend time with family versus work versus eat. And to watch those numbers was like, I'm a massive workaholic. I've got a ton of identity issues. Thinking if I could accomplish this thing, I will be something. I looked at that and I was like, man, I'm not, I'm not spending much time with my family. I'm not spending much time with the Lord. And I'm just anxious and burnt out. And I had to make an adjustment after tracking it for like 18 months. I'm not saying you have to do the same thing because if you do that, you probably have the same problem I do. You just skip that, just take some rest, but really reprioritize your schedule. Consider what it means to rest according to God's ways. You guys ready to move on? Good, number two, here we go. To walk wisely means this, to seek God's will, but you do it in God's way. That's super crucial. You and I've got to figure out how to walk in God's will, God's way. Verse 17 says this, therefore, Paul says, do not be foolish. Foolish is like a mental mindset. It's don't be ignorant in your thinking. And then he shifts the attention. He says, don't be foolish in your thinking, but be understanding, be wise in your thoughts. 
He wants you to know, and then here it is, what the will of the Lord is. Not your will, not your desires, hopes, and dreams. It's what God's will is. He says, don't be foolish. This is how you walk wisely. Understand what the will of the Lord is. The main emphasis in this one verse is that you and I understand and learn to live out of God's will for us and not our own. Because listen, here's our day, our day mantra. This is, this is what we say, our slogan. Follow your heart, trust your gut. Let me just be honest. After pizza, how's your gut feel? It's a little gassy. You shouldn't trust those things. How many of us have gotten into some relational problems because you followed your heart? You followed your heart because he looked cute. She looked cute. How'd that go, right? You follow, some of you are like, oh, that's too close to home. <laughs> Sorry. But here we me too, guys. Me too. Not with my current wife, but you know, in the past with some relationships I've had. Emily's a good pick for me, okay? Emily's my one wife, only one wife. She's wonderful, right? But listen, we follow our heart or we trust our gut. We get ourselves into lots of harm more than good. How can you trust your heart, guys, when your heart isn't sovereign and it isn't perfect like God? Guys, how can you trust your gut when your gut often responds out of feelings than fact? Feelings that are often misguided by biases and misconception. Your gut's limited in understanding the facts and how the future might play out in front of you. Guys, we must seek God's will, not our own will. Not follow your heart, not trust your gut, but listen to the Lord revealed in his word. So the aim of this verse is really to guide our minds and to guide our hearts to seek and trust God's will for our life rather than our own. Because listen, his ways are higher than our ways. His ways are better than our ways. If God is the creator, then we're the creation. Then he's got the design plan. He's got the blueprints. If you uh, have a car manual, if your car's broken, you're trying to change a tire, but you're looking at a different car manual, it's not gonna help you with your current car. If God's the creator of you, then you should trust him and how to live your life and not some other creation that doesn't know how you're supposed to operate. Does that make sense? It's easy for us to think about this, but it's hard for us to follow. Guys, now listen, this is really essential to us because there's a distinction I want to draw here for a brief moment about God's general will and his specific or his particular will. God's general will relates to God's general way in which God calls his people to live for his glory. Uh, This general will is the same for all Christians throughout all time. It's commands like we should pray and that we should share the gospel, that we should avoid sin. That's God's general will for your life. And God's general will is generally revealed in his general commands throughout the Bible. But this is not often what we struggle with, right? You guys don't evaluate, man, should I like kill my roommate this week because they didn't put away their dishes? Or should I like just talk to them about it? You guys aren't like battling that because you know his general will is do not murder your roommate, right? Makes sense. You're not battling his general will. What do you struggle with? What do I struggle with? That's specific will, right? Am I supposed to marry that person? Should I get that job? Is now the time to buy? Man, should I, should I move my family? Ooh, what should I do? Should I like that? It's the, it's the specific things that are a struggle for us. And guys, that's what's different for each of us. God has a different particular specific will for each of us. Not all of you should be pastors. Not all of you should adopt. Not all of you should move. Not all of you should stay. So how do you know what God's will is for you? Is this not what Paul's saying here in verse 
17, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Guys, in this, what should we do then? How do we know his particular will for your life if it's not generally laid out in scripture? Guys, I want to give you six mega quick things that will save you a ton of heartache and me as your pastor, uh, just a ton of counseling time too for me making poor decisions, okay? Let's take these six things to heart and save Pastor Aaron some time and save your life a lot of heartache. Here's what we should do. When we're making decisions, number one, what does the Bible say? I know that sounds chaos and crazy. What does the Bible say? Think about that first. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says this, all scripture, the entire Bible is breathed out by God, meaning that he gave it, he controlled how it got through imperfect people perfectly. All scripture is inspired by God and it's useful for you. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that every person may be complete and equipped for every good work. So if you have a decision to make, what does the Bible say? When my wife and I were trying to figure out, should we move to Boston? Should we adopt? Should I become a pastor? All of that I found within the general revelation of the Bible. It gave me qualifications of someone who should be a pastor. It gave me a command about adoption that really ignited a fire in my wife and I's heart. We were praying about, should we move to Boston? And there's a ton of scripture about making the gospel known in least reached areas. It was very clear in the Bible that God was leading us to this life. So what does the Bible have to say about it? Number two, have you prayed constantly? Whatever decision that you need to make about marriage or dating or job or when to move or what to major in, what is, have you prayed about it? Have you taken time to bring it for the God constantly? James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom of your life, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to them. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 even goes further and says, don't just pray if you lack wisdom. It says, pray without ceasing. Meaning never stop praying. If you're trying to make a decision in your life, whether small or big, pray about it constantly, all the time. Don't just pray once, pray all the time because through that prayer, God will move and change your heart. He'll either give you what you prayed for or give you what you uh, would have prayed for if you knew everything that God knew. Does that make sense? God will shift your even heart to maybe pray something different so pray that and bring that before God. Now that's general for us. If you're a Christian for a long time, you're like, yeah, I should read the Bible. Yeah, I should pray. But what about this one? This is really hard for us. In your decision, let me ask you number three, what's your motivation for this decision? What's the motivation for this decision? This is huge here. Is it about building God's kingdom or building your castle? Your castle of comfort, your castle of happiness, your castle of security. Is your financial decision, your work decision, your move decision, your stay decision, whatever it may be, is it about building and advancing God's kingdom or is it about building your castle of fortitude and comfort? Listen, Matthew chapter six, Jesus speaks a strong word to us about this. He says, listen, we've got to stop being anxious about life. He says, don't be anxious about what you eat or what you drink or where you work or who you should date or, or marry or whether you should move or stay or how can you afford a house? He's saying, stop worrying about the temporal things. He says, look at the birds. They don't worry about their food or their clothes or what they're going to wear. They trust me because I provide it for them. Then he says, look at the lilies of the field. They don't worry about whether they're going to be able to grow, if they have sunlight. They just exist in care. That doesn't mean we shouldn't plan. Doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare. Doesn't mean we shouldn't save. Doesn't mean we shouldn't think. But God's telling us, stop worrying about the temporal 
Focus on the eternal things. In your decisions, are you thinking about God's kingdom advancing, more people knowing about him that don't or can't? Or are you thinking about your castle? And then he ends the passage in verse 33. Jesus says this. He says, but seek first, meaning priority, meaning most importance. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things you're concerned about will be added to you. Do you see what God's doing? He's forming this covenant with you. I know your job's important. I know relationships are important. I know your family's important. I know your job's important. But if you prioritize advancing my kingdom over those things, then I will help you with those things. But if you focus on those things, then you're gonna have a hard time because that's not the design I've made for your life. Do you see what God's saying here? When you're making decisions, is it about building your castle of comfort, security, whatever the case may be? Or are you thinking about advancing the kingdom? This is a hard, hard word. And this is what it means for us to evaluate. Is something the will of God? Next one, number four in this little mini, mini part. Um, what has counsel told you? What has counsel told you when you're making decisions? Proverbs eleven fourteen says this, where there is no guidance, a people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. That's Proverbs eleven fourteen. So here's the question. Do you make your decisions in isolation. When you're thinking about next steps for your life, do you just get alone, Google and you, and you come up with a decision for your life and then tell everyone else about it? That is the worst way that you can operate your life. Because where there's no guidance, you fall. You and I have blind spots. You don't have issues. We can't see perfectly ourselves in the world around us. And so we need wise counsel so Google's great for information, but it's poor for counsel. Counsel is a person that knows you and knows God well. So you need to go to counsel who is wise and godly. They know you well, they knew God well. In wisdom, you need to seek all the possible facts and, and answers and think through all the things. And so sometimes you need to help with people to help you think through those details. So what is counsel telling you? Um, I was uh, in uh, JP this past week. I was meeting with one of our pastors from Forest Hills and we drove by a restaurant and outside uh, was all of this outdoor seating that's common for our neighborhood or common for American life, outdoor seating at a restaurant. But it all had these little like tunnels of silence, cubes of silence around each of the booths so that no one could get COVID. A good plan medically, but a terrible way to live your life wisdom-wise. If you live in these little cones of uh, self-isolation where I'm going to be around people, but I'm going to make my decisions in this little box, it's not good for you. So when you're making big decisions about your life or small decisions, do you invite God's word and God's people to help you in that place? If not, you're not living wisely. Last two things here. How's your heart? Everyone says, well, I just feel like God's leading me to do this or God's calling me to live this way. Now listen, I've been a pastor for about 12 years. I'm not the most experienced in the whole entire world, but there's a lot of people who have said, God's calling me to do this. And I just want to tell you that I think someone else is prank calling you in God's name because often those things contradict God's word. God doesn't tell you to do something that contradicts his word. So if you're thinking God's calling me to do this, is it according to his word? Have you prayed? Is it about his advancement of his kingdom? Have you brought in wise counsel that can affirm that? Those are some of the things that you can know. Is your, is your heart in the right spot? Also, let me just be honest with you. If you're trying to discern God's will or guidance in your life, um, if your life is just filled with like living away from him and just kind of like 
disregarding all of God's principles of existence and then you try to like hear from them, I don't think you can probably hear very clear. Like it's almost like you're under underwater of confusion and you can't hear God call above you. So if you and I are like rolling around in, in sin and we're struggling with walking out his purposes or living out the gospel, and then we're trying to make a big decision, it's gonna be muddy. It's not gonna be very clear for you. And so I just wanna remind you that sometimes the, the enemies at work when we're trying to make decisions. And sometimes what looks like a good decision can be a bad decision. It can distract you from God's calling on your life. Every door of opportunity is not necessarily where God should have you be. Listen, if God gave me a job of $200,000 to go be a a school teacher and I go do that because it's a door of opportunity that has more money, is that necessarily God's will for my life? I'd have more comfort. I'd have more money. I'd be able to teach students. But is that what God's called me to do? Does the door of opportunity can also be a place for the enemy to be at work. So we've got to think through this carefully about how God leads and guides our life. And that's the last point here. Do you see God guiding you or is the enemy tempting you? Again, tempting you to advance your own comfort rather than God's kingdom. Perhaps, guys, we would be we would not have so much struggle in determining God's particular will for our lives if we were more accustomed to discerning his general will for our lives. So if you want to be wise, I want you to know God's word. Know what he has to say in his general principles. And that will help you in the particulars. Does that make sense, guys? I hope that some of those points are helpful for you guys so we don't make decisions in isolation and start doing crazy stuff on the side. All right, number three. To walk wisely means this. You seek fulfillment in God and nothing else. You seek fulfillment in God and nothing else. Verse 18, Paul says this, and this is hard for our culture or maybe even for our current life or our past. It says this, and do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And guys, I love that contrast here. He says, don't get filled with wine, but rather do what? Be filled with the Spirit. I love that. Paul is highlighting a similarity in effect that happens with those two substances, alcohol or the Spirit. He's highlighting a similarity. A person who is drunk, we say, is under the influence of alcohol. But a person who is Spirit-filled and not alcohol-filled is under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit, for when we under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we don't lose control. We actually gain it in the Lord. Overdrinking was a real problem in the ancient world, just as much it is today. And although drinking alcohol in and itself is not sinful, the motive for drinking or the amount of it may be. Listen, you and I can look to alcohol to calm our nerves or to soothe us after a long and stressful day. But if alcohol and drinking becomes the avenue we lean on to care for or to comfort ourselves, then it begins to replace God. And as we turn for it to care for us, and because it's not God, it will only enslave us and harm us and not help us. Although avoiding drunkenness is the particular view of of sin in this text, its command applies to any excessive indulgence. As people, you and I were created to live in relationship with God. And any practice that diminishes a person's awareness of God and the ability to respond to God 
suggests a life that's really out of control and out of the way of this passage. Surely society's excessive focus on materialism or beauty aids or success or comfort or sex all fall under this drunkenness here. It's looking again to creation to fulfill us rather than the creator. And that's what Paul is trying to, God through Paul is trying to help us see there's no overabundance in creation that can satisfy you, especially drinking. There's this great pastor of old, is a pastor and he was a physician as well. His name was Dr. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he helpfully compared and contrasted the two states of drunkenness and the spirit's fullness. Here are his helpful words on this. He says, alcohol, medically speaking, is not a stimulant. It's a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol. And you will find always that it's classified among the depressants. It's not a stimulant. Further, it depresses first and foremost, the highest centers of the brain. So when a person is drunk, the alcohol begins a negative effect in the person's control system, their self-control and their wisdom, their understanding, their good judgment, their balance, and the power to assess things properly go out the window. And whatever makes a person to be their best and their highest is diminished. But what the Holy Spirit does, he says, is the opposite. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook on pharmacology, I would put him under the stimulants for that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates every part of our faculty, the mind and the intellect, the heart and the will. He grants wisdom and understanding and good judgment. So medically and spiritually speaking, yes, I agree with Paul. He says, let us not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. I think that's so helpful in the contrast between the two. That, that idea of being filled or fullness expresses this unity that you and I can have with the triune God. It's the completion of a relationship with him. To be filled with him is to spend time with him, to know him, to receive him in all of his fullness and to give him all of your life and your heart. We're both filled by him. We're both filled with him and we're filled for him. And the best avenue to be filled with God is his word and prayer. And that keeps you from filling yourself with things that can't satisfy. So friend, where do you find yourself filling yourself up that doesn't lead to your flourishing? It may be alcohol, but it may be pornography. It may be work. It could be too much rest. Where are you trying to fill yourself to satisfy yourself when God is saying in Christ, only I can satisfy. I have come to give you life and give it abundantly. Last thing, to walk wisely means what? Walk wisely for a Christian is that you make church life a priority. If you're a Christian, it makes church life a priority. <clears throat> this is how the verses conclude. He says in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So how do we make church life a priority? Three things in this passage. It says you are to make it a priority in your singing, in your thanksgiving, and your mutual submission. Three things he says here, singing. It's interesting. He says in verse 19 that you are and I to address one another 
in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Guys, how odd would it be if like on Sunday morning uh, or Sunday evening when we gather that our greeters just like opened up the door for you and started addressing you in songs? be really weird for us, right? We don't like address each other in Psalms unless you're like in a musical on Disney. And then it's completely normal for like 30 people just to get up and dance and sing in perfect choreography. And then they sit back down and have a normal conversation. Mind blowing that you and I like that, but people do and that's okay. But you and I would think that's odd to do this, to address one another. What's it mean? It means that there's a priority for us to gather and hear each other worship and sing. Listen, one of the most powerful moments for me in church life was when I was a student pastor and we had a girl in our student ministry die of a terrible car accident. She was walking across the street, her earbuds were in, she couldn't hear the car, see the car, and the car hit her and killed her. And the next week in church, there her mom is singing about the goodness of God. How can you do that? And in that moment, I realized that you can't measure goodness in your circumstances You have to measure goodness in what the cross did for us. It gave this mom hope that she would see her daughter again and that this daughter's life didn't end in death, that she's alive now in heaven with Jesus. And this mom is standing there. When I watched her stand there over her daughter's lifeless body, she's now standing in church singing about the goodness of God. And that did something powerful to my heart. And that's what I'm saying, guys, when you gather in worship in person with people or you sing aloud at home because maybe there's immunocompromised person in your home, but you're singing out loud, when you hear another person sing and you know what they're going through, it does something to you. Guys, that's why it's important for us to hear each other sing. That's why often Nick has a couple people on stage singing. That's why I want you to stand and be next to each other, even with COVID permitting, to hear each other sing. Guys, it's powerful when we address one another or we hear one another sing. Now, I don't want to go into it a lot, but there is some distinction here between psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But all of these are good for the Christian people. A psalm could be just a a song that you sing about God. A hymn is a song you sing to God. And spiritual songs are songs that address certain realities of the Christian faith or experience. The song that you might hear like on K-Love, it addresses something about the Christian experience. And we're to sing these songs to and with one another. And I love how it has, singing has two audiences, the ultimate one to God, and then we are to sing with one another, to one another, ultimately to God. And guys, that's why here at Koa, you'll hear music at every gathering that is based on God's word, and focused on God's character. Our goal is that each and every person that's present in our worship services would leave with a sense of awe and wonder at what Jesus has done for you. We strive to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs through ways that make sense to us and that are based in the Bible. That's why making gathering on a Sunday is a priority for us. That's why we do it as often as we possibly can. Because it's in the singing of truths about God and hearing each other sing when we go through hardships, it does something to grow our faith and love in God. Well, how else do we make church life a priority? Not just in singing, but in thanksgiving. Verse 20 says, Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Guys, the, the, the failure to give thanks to God for what he's given us in life and in the gospel for eternity is really the root of much sin. When we are thankless, we search to fill ourselves with what we think God is holding out on us with. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. They weren't grateful that they could walk with God. God told them, don't eat of this one tree. And all their focus went there. God, are you holding out on me? Why won't you let me eat from this one tree? They were not thankful, not grateful for what God had given them in all creation. And thanklessness leads to sinfulness. We think God is holding out on us. And so we date who we want to. We spend how we want to. We eat how we want to, to fill ourselves because we don't trust God's timing. And in this passage, Paul's not telling us to be thankful for murder or be grateful for rape or incest or any of these terrible sins. He's not saying be thankful for everything like that. He's not saying that. He's saying be thankful for what God has done for us, even if it's incomplete, even if we don't see everything we want to, be thankful for, for the, the fact that heaven has all that we want one day. So be thankful for everything. Be thankful always. And guys, being in community, making church priority really helps with that. Not to compare our lives to one another, but to point out the things of thanksgiving. One of the biggest things I struggle with is being grateful. Sometimes I'm so discouraged about what's happened in my life or we want to be a certain place in our church plant that I can be discouraged. And my wife has to remind me how God has worked, how God is working and what God will do all the time. I work with Kyle every day. I work with Nick. He's got a full-time job. But I call in once a week and we often have to remind ourselves about what God has done, what God is doing and what God will do. We have to be thankful that God has moved in our personal lives and in our church. And if I think that he hasn't, I begin to go searching for more past God and not grateful for what he's given us. So being in community helps you be grateful and helps you not to take steps to fill your life with things that are not to be filled with the fact that with not having them with God. Last thing here is submission. This is the most awkward one of all of them. And we'll, we'll continue it more next week, which will be more awkwardness for us when we talk about submission and we talk about marriage and parenting and work life. And that word submission just has such a negative connotation in our culture, doesn't it? Verse 21 says this, in church life, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This last command and all of what Paul is teaching us is perhaps the most challenging to submit to one another. People who are led by the spirit are to submit to one another in this church. And many people are offended by that word submission as if it points out maybe some passive or weak life. Maybe submission has this feeling of a negative self image or giving up control and your free will to someone else. But that's not Paul's intent here. In fact, submission means that we are to care equally for each other. And submission, in fact, is not a weak position. It's a strong position for submission takes a great amount of strength and a great amount of strong will to do it. This was so important for New Testament writers in the Bible that they brought it up all the time. And it was really describing the type of life that Jesus lived. Jesus submitted himself to God the Father's plan. He submitted himself to the cross for us. He was self-giving, loving, and humble, not only to just wash the feet of other people when he's the Lord and King of all, he washed feet, but then he washed sins on the cross. Jesus modeled a life of submission. Mutual submission 
will not allow anyone in our church to promote ourselves over the interest of another because everyone's trying to over-submit themselves, not over-promote themselves. So no one should be promoted higher than another and neither does it make us doormats because mutual submission means we're always trying to lift somebody else up off the ground. Biblical submission means that no one dominates and no one gets stepped on. Doesn't that sound pretty good? If you and I are mutually serving each other, no one gets stepped on, no one dominates. And we're going to see what this looks like in marriage to mutually submit, what it looks like in parenting, what it looks like at work. But really next week, we're going to focus on what it looks like for the household of God, the church, and what's it look like to be in the home. But in this passage, we just get a glimpse of how Jesus submitted himself to us in death and then how you and I are to mutually submit ourselves to one another. So guys, that's why as your pastor, I'm not just telling you how to live your life or what to do. I'm submitted to God's word. We have membership because we submit to one another. No one's needs goes unmet. And so for the members, we all know who we are so we can care for each other and provide for each other. And we vote on things together. There's a mutual submission of care. And guys, that's what our church is designed to do. So no one lords over someone else, but then no one gets stepped on. So as we conclude, let me ask you this. In terms of walking in wisdom, trying to avoid the Legos and the Barbies of the destruction of life, let me ask you this. Do you steward your time for God's glory? Do you seek God's will, God's way and not your own? Do you seek to fulfill your life in God and not something else? And do you seek to make church life a priority? My friends, we see this perfectly lived out in the life of Jesus for you. And where you fall short, there is grace, there is forgiveness. And because of Christ, there's a way that you can live this way because of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you now. Church, let's live this way. Let's pursue this. Let's care for each other well. Let's pray. 